Whatever kids we have here this morning, I think you can follow Mr. Webb to Children's Church. So we still have some of the words of the song up there. It says, and my song shall ever be, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love to me. And I, I know sometimes people on the outside of the faith, they hear words like that and, and they don't really understand it. You'll hear people make comments like, oh gosh, I can't wait to get heaven and sit on a cloud and play a harp. <laughs> and for them that sounds boring, but for those of us who have ever really entered into that spirit of worship. Uh, for those of us who have really come before the living God and we have sung his praises, we understand that there is nothing else like it in all this world. Uh, I had the privilege a couple of times of going uh, to a pastor's prayer summit. It was three days of just prayer for pastors, assistant pastors and that kind of thing. Um, it wasn't a time of teaching or, or anything like that. It was simply a time of prayer. And then uh, in that last day that we were together, uh, we had communion, and we would come up to the table and take that communion as we felt led by the Spirit. And then we would kind of stand around that uh, table, and then one man would start with a song. And it was a cappella. There wasn't an instrument in the place. And everyone would join him. And there were 60 or 70 pastors and, and singing with all our hearts, the ones that could sing and the ones that couldn't sing. And, and we were giving glory to the living God. And something happens to you when you do that. You get caught up in it and you find yourself experiencing that glory. And there just really is nothing like it on all the earth, you know. And so for those who kind of make fun of it, I feel sorry for them. They just haven't tasted that. But if they ever did, they would know what a wonderful, wonderful thing it is. So anyway, our scripture reading today comes from uh, one of my favorite books. I have it almost all memorized, although the, the NIV has been updated in the translation, and I stumble over it all the time, not just in Philippians, but all over. But Philippians chapter 2, verses uh, 12 and 13, uh, one of those passages of scripture that, um, that kind of grabs your attention sometimes, and, uh, and then you walk away saying, wow, that's pretty interesting, and there's a lot of things to think about in it. We're not going to look at it today. It's just going to introduce us to our text. But Paul writes this, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, I just have to make a comment there. When he's talking about obeying there, he's not talking about obeying him as the apostle, but obeying the living God, right? And if we love our God, then we want to live out that life and we live in obedience. But anyway, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for or because it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now, you know, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And it's my prayer that his word would feed our souls today. 
Would you join me, please, as we pray? Uh, Father, we, um, we really are glad um, for your word. It's this wonderful, wonderful treasure. It's worth more than rubies or diamonds. Or there isn't enough money in the world to, um, to um, give in exchange for what we find between the covers of this book. Um, you tell us about yourself. You reveal to us the truth about ourselves. You, you tell us how to live. You, you reveal what the world that we uh, live in really is like. Uh, everything that you tell us in this book is true, and we can trust it without hesitation. And Lord, not only have you given us uh, this book that we can read and, and study on our own, we sit and do our own devotions, Lord, but, but you, uh, you take it a step further, and you've given us this really wonderful privilege of gathering together as your church, as the body of Christ, and, and to hear what you might have to say to us. And, and Lord... Um, it is our prayer that you would speak to us today through your word. Father, you know the hearts of every person that's here today, and you know what they need to hear. I, I don't know that, but you do. And so I do pray that as your word goes forth today, that, that something in it would speak to those that are here. And Father, I pray that when we hear you speak, that we would embrace that. We just draw it close to our hearts and that we would endeavor to put it into practice in our lives. That is for me, Lord. You know I failed you and your people more times than I can count. Nevertheless, um, because of your grace, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of, of all of our hearts um, be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our Redeemer. And it's in Jesus' wonderful name that we pray. Amen. So here we are. Uh, once again, we're standing at the uh, beginning of a, a new year. And, and in one sense, um, it, it's, uh, it's a change in the calendar like any other change in the calendar. It, it's one day turning into the next, right? And yet in another way, it's different. I mean, it's a reminder that time is moving on, and although it may be cliched, it is nonetheless true. Time really waits for no one. One year departs, and another one is here, and we can't stop it. We can't change its pace. It is both relentless and insistent. And Ann and I lived in the Midwest for a number of years, nine years or so, and we lived out there. It was in the middle of farm country. I don't guess you get much more farm than where we were. And I saw there that many people living in a place like that measured time by the plantings and harvests that they had. And I realized then and there that, that their, a person only has so many harvests in their life. And it was for me one of those kind of a aha moments, you know, when, when a truth came home to me. And at that time I was thinking, well, eh, if I'm lucky, maybe I'll have 40 more harvests to go. And now that number is quite a bit less, maybe 20. Who knows what the future holds for me. But we only have so many harvests. And so the farmers, they, they planted and and they fertilized, and they applied the weed killer, and they did whatever it was they could do. And the weather was what it was. It either contributed to the growth or it inhibited the 
uh, growth of the plants. And I think the wise ones uh, prayed. And finally, there was a harvest, and the crop was gathered in. And it was what it was. There was nothing at that point that could be done. There was no changing it at that point. It was, so to speak, in the books. And a bad year meant tighter belts and more careful living. And a good year, well, that brought rejoicing in some ease. And yet, good or bad, the next year was already on the way. And for most of us, our lives aren't marked by those planting and harvest, and yet we have that same sense of a, of a kind of a change, that same kind of rhythm in our lives. And people all over the world recognize the beginning of a new year. It might not be celebrated on the same date, you understand that, but the idea of the old moving out and the new coming in is there, and then again, they, they may not acknowledge it in quite the same way, but it's there nonetheless. And I really do think that that's all part of God's design. In the very first book of the Bible, in Genesis, we're told that the sun and the moon and the stars are set into heaven to mark off the seasons, to mark off the changing of time. And so there's this continual change that occurs in our world, and yet there's this repetition, this cycle of the new year supplanting the old. And even the nation of Israel, when it was uh, first brought into being, was commanded by the living God to observe the new year each and every year. Different time than ours is, but that observation was there none uh, the less. And one of the things that seems to be common in all cultures uh, is this desire to make the new year better. Um, and, and yet, not just better financially, not just a better harvest, not just the gathering of, of more things that might indeed be there, but there's more to it than that. There's a desire that this new year would be better because I'm better. I'm a better person. There, there is in that, this desire to become something more than we already are. There is this desire within our human heart to improve, to leave behind some of what we were and to become more of what we in our hearts know that we ought to be. And it really is, I believe, built into us. Uh, we know that in one way or another, we know that we we need it. We, we recognize we need it because we recognize how far short we fall of what we ought to be. And in another way, we want it. We don't just need that change. We want that change because I think we're created in the image of God and, and that image desires good. The fall, of course, marred the image. Every part of that image has been marred, but it did not erase it completely. And then there's our our conscience. And again, we may not completely understand what that is and even how it works. And, and that too, our conscience has also been marred by the fall. And yet it functions as a kind of a gauge. It, it convicts us of our sins, of our failures, of our shortcomings. And on the other side, it encourages us to do the right kind of thing and to do good. And so you put all of those things together. The change in the season and years that reminds us of the march of time and our conscience first convicting us and then encouraging us. And the fact that we're all made in the image of God and sensing both the need and the desire to become something better than we are really is a, a universal. All of those things are universal, and they affect humankind in many different ways. 
And one of those ways it affects us is if we begin to look for those new possibilities, those changes that can happen in our lives as the new year begins. And so that desire to become a better person really is built in us, and only the hard-hearted or the arrogant deny it. And I have to tell you, people that are in that place didn't start there. Uh, They got to that place gradually, like a frosting or a freezing of their heart and soul. So Calvin and Hobbes is uh, one of my favorite comics, right? I just love that. I enjoy it. Great humor, you know. And every year, you know, uh, Calvin had something to say about New Year's and New Year's resolution. And one year, he made the statement that he wasn't going to make any resolutions this year. He felt like he was just fine, just the way he was. He thought everybody else needed to make resolutions to change just to suit him. And you know, when you read that in a comic, that's humorous. But if you meet someone in real life, it's not funny at all. It really is quite disturbing and, and it's sad, as I think we'll see. So that desire to change, to become a better person, is there in all of us, unless we choke it out. But we also discover something else, don't we? So if I were to ask you guys to raise your hands and ask how many of you made New Year's resolutions, I probably almost everybody here would say at least one time or another in their lives they had done that, right? Uh, and then if I were to say, well, how many of you kept them, all those hands that were up probably would go right back down because we know how difficult that is to do. We make those desires, we want to change, and yet we see that it is almost impossible to do it. And those two facts put together, right? Uh, That desire to change, to become what we aren't yet, and our powerlessness to do that eventually points us to God. We begin to recognize that we can't, do it on our own we realize that we need God and Christianity really is the only thing that addresses our condition and there really are many places in the scripture we could uh, look at that speak to this particular truth but the one we're going to look at this morning is found in first John chapter uh, one and it's of course one of the most well-known verses in the Bible first John 1 9 and I think we've got it up, or we'll get it up on the, on the uh, overhead in just a minute. And those of you who want to turn in your Bible can do so. First John 1, 9. Again, a familiar passage of Scripture. I'm going to read it uh, first. This is what uh, John wrote. If we confess our sins, he, meaning, of course, God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, there's a great deal that's being said here in this passage, and we're going to look more closely at it in just a moment. But, but first, I, I want to try to put it in its context, and we're going to do that by reading the passage on either side of it. So in verse 8, we read this. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. While on the other side of that passage, we read in verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, We make him, again meaning God, out to be a liar, and his word is it not in us. And so those two verses, and many more like it in the Scripture, tell us that sin is a present reality in the life of all people. And you understand that. It's a reality in my life as a pastor. It's a reality in your life as Christians. It's a reality in the life of the unbeliever. Every missionary you've ever met, Every person who has ever lived 
are sinners with the exception of Christ. And so we have sinned in the past, and we continue to sin in the present. And as hard as that might be for some people to admit, that admitting, the admittance of that truth and that fact really is a step in the right direction. And to fail to recognize that means that we have deceived ourselves and the truth is not in us and we call God a liar and we don't acknowledge his word. That's what those verses 8 and 10 tell us if we don't recognize the fact that we're all sinners. And and so that's a pretty tight space to be in, to not recognize that. And one commentator put it this way. It said, it is one thing to tell a lie. It's worse to deceive oneself uh, to a point where you don't recognize truth. It is still worse to make God out to be a liar. And when you're in that place, you're an awfully long way from the place you need to be. And again, nobody starts there. Uh, If you're in that place, you end up there because you don't acknowledge the truth that you're a sinner. You keep denying that truth. Only Jesus, of all the people who have ever lived, was without sin, and that's why he can save us. So we're all sinners, and we're all in the same boat, and the boat is sinking. And not only is it sinking, but it's, it's going over the falls. And if we don't realize that, there's nothing left for us but disaster. But to recognize it, to realize that truth, means that at the very least you can call for help. You may not be able to do anything else, but you can call for help. And that's what verse 9 is all about. It's us calling for help. It's good news for the sinner, and it points to a new beginning. So I want to read that again and then take it apart so we can understand it better. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And it begins with these words, if we confess our sins. It doesn't say, if we happen to sin, we ought to confess it. No, we do sin. It's a given. And and even if you just had that verse, just verse 9 there, even if you didn't have the verses that we've already looked at on either side, you would understand that you sin because that verse assumes it. We've already acknowledged it. Those two verses make that clear. And so we are to confess our sins. And, And who do we confess them to? Well, we're to confess them to God. He is, after all, the one who acts when we do confess our sins. And the text doesn't tell us that we're supposed to confess to, to some other person. Although there are times when we should, and we're going to talk about those uh, shortly, but here, the one we're supposed to confess to, to make confession to, is God himself. Now, you understand that wasn't quite the case in the Old Testament, right? So when you lived, if you lived back in those days, um, you had to go regularly to the temple and you had to go regularly to the priest to make intercession for you. I mean, you could, um, you could confess your sin, you could call to God, you could pray to God, but everyone who did that still understood that they had to go to a priest as God's representative on earth to have that priest go before God on their behalf. When Christ came, all of that changed. I mean, he opened a new way for us so we could go directly to God without the need for any priest other than Jesus himself. 
And, of course, Jesus is God the Son. And so we can and we should confess our sins directly to God. And, and again, there may be times when it's helpful to talk with another person, to confess to them, but not in place of a confession to God. So listen, you know, there are religions out there that tell you you sin, you need to come, you need to talk to this priest, you need to tell this other person what you've done. And, and if you do that, but you haven't gone to God yourself and confessed to him, you really haven't completed what this is talking about here. That confession is supposed to be to God himself, and, and so we need to do it. So, so he's the one we go to. Sometimes we need to talk to others, but that confession still needs to happen, that relationship with God. No one stands between us and the Father anymore. Because of Jesus coming, we have that access. So when we do that, when we confess our sins to God, what really is happening there? I mean, are we telling him something that he doesn't already know? I, I mean, that happens sometimes when you make a confession to, to another person, right? I mean, sometimes you might go to another person because you've done something wrong to them and they don't even know it. And so, so that confession means you're revealing to them something that you've already done. Or, or maybe you're going to talk to somebody about something you're struggling with and it's not against them personally. And maybe they had some idea you were struggling, but they really don't know. And most of the time, it becomes a surprise to them. But when we go to God and we confess to God, we're not telling him something he doesn't already know. He knows it. In fact, he really knows it better than we do. He has an exact understanding of what our sin is. And, and what we're really doing when we go to our God and we confess our sin is we're agreeing with him that what we have done is wrong. We are acknowledging that we have sinned. We're doing more than that, but we're certainly not doing less. We're we're coming clean, as that saying goes. And so after Adam and Eve sinned, do you remember what happened back in chapter 3 of Genesis? Scriptures tell us they heard God walking in the cool of the day in the garden, and they hid from him. They did wrong. They knew they'd done wrong, and they tried to hide from God. And what was God's response? He said, Where are you, Adam? Not because he didn't know where Adam was. He knew exactly where he was. That question was an invitation for Adam to come to him and to tell him exactly what he had done. It was an invitation to see for himself that Adam should understand that what he had done had separated him from God. And what happened when Adam did come? He tried to make excuses for himself and he blamed his wife. The woman you gave me, she gave me of the fruit, and I ate. But when we confess our sins to God, we're doing the opposite of what Adam did. We're going to God. We're not hiding from him. We're not trying to pass the blame to someone else. And even if there's some kind of extenuating circumstances, we still acknowledge that we are sin, that we, uh, we have our part to play in it. And we're acknowledging before the God of all the universe that we have done wrong. And in so doing, we're in agreement with God that what we did was wrong, for surely he already knows that. And so this act of confession 
is a kind of a new beginning for us. We'll see more about that in just a minute. But that confession is between us and the living God. And, and, and there are times when we need to talk with someone else about it, that we do confess to other people. There's at least two times when that happens. First, sometimes we need to confess something to a person in order to get things right with them. And so if I have had a falling out between me and another Christian... It could be over almost anything. I, I, I mean, there are so many little things that really are nothing, and yet I've seen divisions in churches and people over those things. But you have that between you and another Christian. You go to that person and you confess your part of the sin. And you're doing that to, in order to bring that unity back together. My home church, Brandy Wine Valley Baptist Church, I know I talk about it a lot, but I love it. That church was a result of a church split. And those group of people that formed Brandy Wine Valley Baptist Church who'd gotten together and for a year and a half or two years, they went absolutely nowhere. They got together one day and they had a meeting and they said, I think maybe we need to close the doors of the church. And then one old wise saint stood up and said, I don't know whether God wants this church to exist or not, but I know one thing. We left that other church, and there's a division between us and them. And before we do anything else, we need to make that right. So the chairman of the board of that deacons of that church called the chairman of the board that they left. They got together and met. Then the boards met. And then they had a combined worship services where the two churches met. And they sat there, and this person over here got up and walked over to that person over there and apologized and confessed their sin. That sometimes has to happen. And it was after that service that they called Bo Matthews, my friend, and that church, Brandywine, just took off, and it's never stopped since. So sometimes that has to happen. But it doesn't happen all the time. The truth of the matter is you cannot confess every sin that you sin against people. You just can't do it. It's impossible to do. And the truth is, it's, it's not always the right thing to do. And if your confession would hurt that other person or hurt someone else and only help you, then bear your burden and keep your mouth shut. But you may need to talk with someone. And that's the second point. And that's when you can't go to someone and you need to talk to anyone. So as a pastor, how many times have I sat down with someone and they open up to me and they tell me about some sin in their life that they've been struggling with and they've been struggling with it for years. Maybe it's something they've done in their past and it haunts them. Every waking hour, every night in their sleep, this thing comes to them over and over again. Or it's something they struggle with and they can't seem to get victory over. And every day they wrestle with it. When you find yourself in that position, it's a good thing to go and talk to somebody, to confess that sin. But again, you just can't do that with just anybody. You, you confess some of those sins to some people, you'll hurt them. You might even destroy their faith. You need to find someone who's a godly person. Someone who knows the scriptures and can talk to you in authority about what God's word says in those instances. And when you do that, you find this kind of a healing process begins. 
And somehow God in his wisdom has determined that for you, speaking to him alone wasn't enough. Whether it's some pride in your heart or something else there, you need to go and you need to talk to someone about that. But, but still, if you do that, the confession to the living God still has to happen. And so we, we've all sinned and we... We continue to sin, and so we need to confess those things to God. And when we do that, God, uh, to go to God, and we and we can make our confession. Then two things happen according to this text, and they're really wonderful things that happen. And the first thing that happens is that God forgives our sins. And so this text tells us when we read it, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So when we confess, what does God do? He forgives. And and what does that mean well think of it this way if sin were a debt as far as god is concerned that debt is canceled so it might be the right thing that you make restitution to someone but as far as god is concerned that debt to him is paid completely so if you had taken somebody's property you had stolen something from them the right thing for you to do would be to return that but from god's perspective you're forgiven that debt is paid, and it was paid by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it also means that God will never bring it up to you again. Now, that's sometimes hard for us to understand because we deal with people all the time, and even the best of people sometimes bring it up again, don't they? Hey, heard it in the counseling. I've experienced it in life. I don't know anyone I've ever talked to in a personal way that hasn't told me I've gotten in an argument with my wife or I got in an argument with my husband and they brought up every bad thing I'd ever done. But God doesn't do that. When he forgives it, it is forgiven completely. And it means he doesn't want anyone else to bring that up either. And so Satan does. Satan brings that up again and again, and he accuses you again and again. And all of us who have walked with God any time have heard those words, right? How can you be a Christian doing the kinds of things that you've done, right? And so you know what I do when that happens? I, I don't let him beat me. I, I just turn it in to prayer. And I go again to God and I say, Lord, I know I've confessed this to you. But once again, I, I want to acknowledge before you that what I did was awful. And it hurt someone. And I'm so sorry that it did. And I take that and I use it as a signpost. And I remind myself, I've gone down that path. I don't ever want to go down that path again. I don't let Satan defeat me. I don't ignore what's happening. I simply take it and turn it into prayer. And so God doesn't bring it up. He doesn't want anyone else bringing it up. And when our spouses or other ones do, then we have to love them and forgive them. But God doesn't want that to come up again. And finally, there's real freedom in knowing that God has forgiven us. The weight of sin is real, my friends. It is indeed a burden. But Christ has taken it. He gathered all of the sins of all people of all time all the world on himself on that cross and he took it away and 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 when we confess our sins we once again step into that freedom and, you know we're justified and i i love the way that i don't know who the wag was that came up with it but but they explained justified this way just as if i'd never sinned justified never sinned just as if i'd never sinned think about 
how clean that is, how good that is. Well, that's what God's forgiveness means to us. Now, there's consequences to sin sometimes. We know that things continue. We live in a real world where we can do real things that are good and we can do real things that are bad and there are consequences, but we're forgiven. And our relationship with God is right and as it should be. The debt's canceled and, um, and we're free. The second thing that happens here when we confess our sins is that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and he does something else. He purifies us from all unrighteousness. You see that forgiving the sin, that's taking something negative and it's saying, okay, we're going to wipe that away, we're going to do away with it. But then he does something else in us. He takes the next step. He, he purifies us from all unrighteousness righteousness he has forgiven us and he begins that work in our heart to change us so if sin is like missing a mark you all have heard that definition right you know you're aiming the arrow at the target and you miss completely that's a sin right and what god does is he says um, that's all right don't worry about that arrow I- i've taken care of it i've forgiven you that but not only have i done that but I'm going to teach you how to shoot better. You, you've sinned. You've come to me. You've told me what you've done. You've confessed that sin. And now what I'm going to do is not only am I going to forgive you, but I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you to live as a Christian. I'm going to strengthen you in the good intentions that you have. Yeah, it's a wonderful promise. I, I used to go when I was, uh, became a Christian, and that, that verse was one that was shown to me. You know, I went to the guy that led me to the Lord, and I told him I'd sinned, and I was heartbroken, and he, said, he took me to that passage, and I found that relief. You know, I could confess my sin, and I knew God had forgiven me. But one day, he opened my heart my mind to the truth of, of more, that God doesn't just forgive, but he works in my heart to change me and make me into the kind of person that he wants me to be. And that, <laughs> that's good news. That's a wonderful thing. And, 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 and look what it says when he forgives us. He is faithful and just. He is always faithful. You, you understand that? He is always faithful. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. And we go to him and we confess our sins. And you guys know how many times have you gone and confessed that same sin over and over and he's faithful and he forgives you over and over because he loves you but he's also just there's a confusion in christian circles sometimes you'll hear somebody say you don't want god's justice you want his mercy as if justice and mercy are somehow against one another when we understand god's justice it really is then those two things are no longer in competition god's justice is expressed in one of two ways. It's expressed as condemnation for the unrepentant, and it's expressed as grace and mercy and forgiveness for the repentant sinner. And when God forgives you your sin, he's not being unjust. He's being just. So that's a familiar passage of Scripture to us. I mean, there's probably nobody here that hasn't seen that and known that. 
And, and, and when, we, when we look at this, we understand we're not earning our salvation. It, it really is for us a new beginning every day. We come to a time like this, and it reminds us of the desire to change. It reminds us that there's a time, that time is passing, and that, that we're one day are going to stand before God. And, and if we have anything of the Spirit of God in us, we want to become better Christians. And there are people out there in the world who are lost, who don't know anything about this. And, and every year at New Year's time, they think, at least they think, maybe I should make a resolution. <laughs> Some of them got to a point where they say, I'm not making another one because I can't keep it. But their thoughts are there. And you see, we have good news because you can tell them, on your own, you can't do it. On your own, whatever resolution you make, you might keep this long. You won't keep it this long. But there's a God in heaven who knows you, who loves you, who sent his son to die for you. And if you go to him and if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive you your sins. And he'll do another thing. He'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He'll begin working in you and changing you. Sometimes I look at my life and I feel discouraged. (laughs) I, I think, Lord, I wish I were further along than I am. Sometimes I look and I realize just how far I have to go. And I can get discouraged in that. At other times, though, I look back and I see what I once was. And though I have a long way to go, I am not that man I once was. My wife, had she had known me then, would have run away screaming. I'm not that man. I became a man that she could love. And I'm not the man that I was when we first got married. A long way to go. I wish I were a better husband. I wish I were a better father. I wish I were a better pastor. But I'm not the man I was because God has been working in my life. And every day that goes by, I try confess I believe that God is at work and if I have hope that what's coming yet will be because he is at work in my life and that's a message we all need to hear and that's a message that the lost world needs to hear they've heard enough of be better do better try harder they need to hear about the Savior takes our sins away and makes us new creatures. And that will bring a happy new year for all involved. So, let me do it. Let me say it. Happy new year to you and all of yours. May God bless you in this coming And may you be his light in this world. In Jesus' name.